This is a conversation with journalist Vincent Bevins on his recent book on Indonesia, Brazil, and the CIA, The Jakarta Method. We discuss the implementation and incentives the CIA used to help coordinate the massacre of Indonesian communists, how this violence was then ported over to South America, and the reverberations and consequences of this violence today, how figures like a Bolsonaro and some of the far-right military figures in Indonesia can trace their lineage and ideology to the sanctioned violence that formed and destroyed the left of their eras. Vincent is a fascinating journalist who does his homework, learning the languages and reporting locally on these conflicts, and was open to a variety of questions on Indonesia, communism, the far right, and his perspectives on what journalists who cover these issues can do to make sure they tell and report these stories accurately. For more conversations like this, you can go to our back catalog on the Arts of Travel podcast. We're on Apple, Google, Spotify, and other podcast platforms. And you can go to our main website, asiaarttours.com. We host interviews, articles, and all sorts of fascinating content about the artists, thinkers, and activists globally who we find inspiring. All right, here's our conversation with Vincent Bevins on his book, The Jakarta Method. I hope you enjoy. Yeah, sure. My name is Vincent Bevins, and I'm a journalist, foreign correspondent, and author. I covered um, Southeast Asia for the Washington Post. Before that, I was a Brazil correspondent here in Sao Paulo for the LA Times. And I just wrote a book called The Jakarta Method. And I'm wondering for, for you, as you reported on this, um, both in uh, Brazil and in um, Indonesia, do, do you see a good way to talk both about, yes, you know, the, these are, these were incited in large part by foreign powers, but the, there were people on the other end in these countries pulling the trigger and doing the violence. So we don't sort of um, talk over and to fully honor the trauma that these people have experienced. We, we can't just blame, you know, a Kissinger or a McNamara. We also have to look at the people carrying out the violence within these countries. That's right. So in Indonesia, for example, which is the center, the central episode of my book, the apex of the of anti-communist violence in the 20th century, I say the prime responsibility for the massacres and concentration camps lies with the Indonesian military. Um, in Brazil, uh, for example, which is the second most important case in the book, the the, the, the ruling class of Brazil required much less prodding from the United States to, to carry out the coup and then eventually to commit acts of violence. So the, it, no, it's it just like with any story, it's important to, to, to center uh, sort of, you have to pick a main narrative and yet, but you can't neglect the other side of the story. One thing that I will say in the case of my book is that in the case of Indonesia, the reason I didn't make any of the murderers, the main characters, is because of the excellent movie that came out that Josh, Josh Oppenheimer uh, made, The Act of Killing, and then the second one, The Look of Silence. But I think you're right. So, But I mean, I think also to a large extent, my book ends up being about the nature of a particular hegemonic order. And the, for better or worse, what I think is most interesting to a global reader is the commonalities across all of the countries within that global order and the way that the, the new hegemon shapes sort of the possibilities on all of planet Earth uh, in the period in which that order takes shape. But no, I absolutely agree that the 
it is it would, is reductive and insufficient to say that uh, the United States is the only person uh, at work here. I mean, we, to me, in the case of Indonesia, we don't even know who came up with the plan to do mass murder and if that plan was entirely Indonesian or if, if there was the participation of foreign forces at all in the in the creation of the mass murder plan. All we know is that the United States, once they found out that it was beginning, uh, enthusiastically encouraged it. We, we really don't even know who came up with the idea at all. Could you describe just the, the, the best practices you followed to make this book, which, you know, obviously you're getting in all the the, the very, very high level um, newspapers. You, you just wrote for the New York Times. You were in uh, a, an excerpt adapted from your book was in the New York Review of Books. So people who scrutinize facts for a living have said, all right, this passes um, any test or um, um, scrutiny we could throw at Vincent's reporting. So could you describe a bit about the lengths you went to report this story and what those best practices look like? Uh, for better or worse, my entire career has been within the field of mainstream English language uh, journalism. I sort of learned learned the, the, the trade uh, at the Financial Times and then in, in, through editors in Daily Times in, in Brazil. And so, so my all of my training is sort of in the world of American and British newspaper reporting. And so I, 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 I approached this particular story with the same sort of skill set and the same sort of set of concerns that I would a, a normal newspaper story, but obviously it's much bigger. I also felt a greater moral responsibility to really be sure I didn't screw this up because they, I, you know, th there, I spoke to survivors around the world and these are people that um, every day of their lives is still affected um, to a large extent by the experiences that they shared with me and they trusted me as somebody that was going to treat the, their, this issue with, with care. So what I did is I read every single bit of academic and uh, journalistic background on the events that I could and, and, and got to know the academics who know the, the story really well. I, uh, I got a good idea of what that academic consensus was. And then once I had that basis, I went and I did all these interviews and I made sure that uh, I really was, that the, the narratives that they gave to me were not in any way contradicting what I already understood to be the established facts. If they had, then that would have set off a red flag, but they didn't. So that, so I was um, doubly sure that everything, that it was, it was good to proceed. And then I used, uh, as I, I, I guess you know, um, direct citations from declassified files that are, uh, as far as we know, faithful reproductions of what the U.S. officials were saying at the time. We don't, you know, there's big holes there. And, and so I also was very careful to, when there was fruitful ground uh, for conspiracy theory, and I think there is some, to an extent, there is some parts of this where the only way to do it is to come, is to sort of theorize about possible conspiracies. conspiracies. I sort of avoided those questions uh, more or less entirely. And then when I had the final uh, manuscript finished, even though it was not an academic text, I submitted it for review to four uh, academic historians, one, two, one Indonesian, one American who studies U.S.-Indonesia relations, one Latin America specialist, and one American uh, historian who does uh, Indonesian history. And um, at that point, I felt fairly confident. I, I mean, I'm still terrified that there might be some small error here or there that, that will be found. But I knew, for better or worse, that sort of that um, when you're accusing the United States government of doing something, the, the, there's going to be even more scrutiny. So, I, I mean, I don't, I, I don't, uh, I welcome that scrutiny. And so I, I did everything that I could think of to vet the story. But I also have the, you know, I also had the, um, the luxury of being, you know, more than half of a century after the fact. So I, I, it, that, it did make that a lot easier to do. A lot of this was locally reported as well um, with either, and this was unclear for me, did you learn Bahasa Indonesian or would you go with um, uh, uh, a local media person when you were conducting these interviews? No, no, I did the interviews myself in Indonesian. So 
so I did interviews in English, Spanish, Portuguese, and, and Indonesian. Um, when I started doing the Indonesian language interviews, my, my first instinct was to have an interpreter. Um, there was quite a tragic, um, tragically sad moment when I realized that you can't do that. Um, that a lot of the survivors of the violence of 1965 are still so affected by the stigma of being quote-unquote communist that they have a very hard time speaking in front of other Indonesians. So I, I, uh, my Indonesian was already okay, and then I got it up to a little bit better than okay, which was good enough to do all the interviews, and then I would go over the transcripts later um, with, a, with an assistant. But no, and, and yeah, and I, like, like you said, I, again, I had the luxury not only of 60 years of, of um, retrospective uh, analysis, I had the resources that allowed me to, to travel around and, and, and do interviews on the ground in 12 countries. So I, I spent you know, three years really making sure that everything lined up and then selecting very carefully the stories that would fit into the kind of a book that a normal person could sort of sit down and, and, and flip through without um, needing a huge amount of expertise or uh, a lot of struggle. Well, that is that sounds like reporting practices that would stand up to scrutiny um, for the beginning to look at the conflict itself um, prior to um, the violence in Indonesia. Could you set a little bit the stage and scope of the communist movement within the country? And something that I wasn't clear about from some of the reading, I haven't finished your book. Um, I've read some and then these supplemental essays. But was their vision of communism one that was relatively autonomous? So it would be, you know, it would be under maybe the general framework of communism, but very specific to Indonesia. Was it communism that was heavily influenced by foreign powers like uh, uh, the USSR or China? Um, so what was the communism that existed at this time, and um, we can then turn to maybe the state and capital uh, after that. The Indonesian Communist Party by 1965 was the third largest uh, in the world um, behind the Soviet and Chinese parties. And so by that time, they really felt that they were big enough and independent enough that they weren't taking any direction from, Mo I mean, they weren't really friendly with Moscow. They were in okay, uh, they were in communications with Mao, but according to Mao, they would have been considered revisionists because they went along with Khrushchev's condemnation of Stalin's crimes. But let me go back a little bit to the beginning because it's important to sort of um, explain who they were. The Indonesian Communist Party was the oldest communist party in, in Asia, and they were founded before the Russian Revolution. So those that might know the sort of um, long history of Marxism um, would would be able to recognize them as a very old school Marxist party. They really believed in the necessity of developing capitalism fully before you would transition to socialism. So even by the 40s and 50s and 60s, their vision of a transition to socialism was not something that they thought would happen in a violent revolution tomorrow. They wanted socialism to happen in the year 2000. So, you know, at, from their perspective, 50 years in the future or 40 years in the future. And in the very early years of the Chinese Communist Party, the Chinese, uh, Mao was actually directed by Moscow to form alliances with, uh, quote-unquote, bourgeois forces, this being the nationalists in, in China, because of the success that Indonesia, Indonesian communists had um, even before uh, Mao um, came under the purview of the Comintern. So... A short, that's a very long way of saying it was, a, it was a moderate party. And they always, they were always, um, they had no theory of violent revolution. And they, except for a, a small power struggle, struggle within the uh, anti-Dutch independence movement, which did lead to a small eruption of violence in 1948, they became a mass-based populist nonviolent party, which was doing very, very well in elections in the 1950s. So in the 1950s, they started to do better and better. And this is what really alarmed the United States. So the United States started in 1955 by trying to just give money to a right-wing Muslim party, 
hoping that this would stop the rise of the Indonesian Communist Party in electoral victories. This, is, this did not work. Uh, and then that led to a um, actual CIA invasion of the country. This, the CIA actually bombed the country in 1958 as a sort of a more radical attempt to stop Indonesia's drift to the left or to, to really stop Sukarno from causing problems in the, on the world stage in the, in the new third world. And by 1965, Sukarno had very much aligned ideologically with the Communist Party, but still not very, being fully communist at all and still overseeing a very broad-based uh, plural movement in Indonesia. So it was, it's certainly not what, what a, an American now would think of as quote-unquote a communist party. They had a very different vision than what Mao was putting forward. I mean, Mao, Mao tried to influence them. Mao and Zhou Enlai told them, oh, no, you should arm um, you need to have a militia of the people. The, this never happened. It was always an unarmed movement with a very long-term goal of, of creating capitalism, expelling the imperialists, and then transitioning to socialism. Something I always wonder about within Indonesia, um, particularly after reading the work of Joshua Hendrick, who um, meticulously documents the Gulen movement uh, in Turkey and how they rose to power um, not socialist or communist, but interesting for me when I look at um, countries that are where religion is a very big part of daily life. Um, do, was Islam part of um, some of the components of the Communist Party, a more communistic version of Islam? Were they working with local Islamic leaders to try to um, implement policies? And, and maybe just on that day-to-day -day level, why... Would they? How did they grow to the point they did? Was was a lot of this sort of um, bread and basic medical care, or I'm sorry, rice and basic medical care? Um, how how did they try to try to integrate maybe with religion and beyond that, just the daily fabric in a way that would make them uh, become popular? In a quite a remarkable fashion, there was a sort of unity of Islam and Marxism in the during the days of the anti-colonial struggle. So Sukarno came up in this milieu um, under Dutch colonialism where he saw unity between Marxism and Islam and nationalism. And he wrote an essay about this, I believe, in 1926. And, you know, in a way that I think will be familiar to a lot of people is that when you have a big enemy, everyone comes together, right? So there was this, there was a, there was Muslim communists, there were people that believed that sort of Marx and the Quran um, went hand in hand. This was, you know, in the 20s and 30s. There was active, uh, I just mentioned uh, the way that Mao was directed to work with the nationalists based on the success of the Indonesian Communist Party working with quote-unquote bourgeois movements. In Indonesia, that was Sadiqat Islam, the uh, Islamic Union. And so this was very much a, um, a communist party that always worked hand in hand with religious movements. And so in a very strange way, even as you, so as the Dutch big enemy falls away, the, there are, um, differences do emerge in the multi-party democracy that Sukarno oversees until 1958. And then they do accentuate more so as you get to 1965, but still, by global standards, the Indonesian Communist Party was very much not an atheist party. Um, uh, the leader of the party, even in, in, in a sort of a strange way, came up with this kind of workaround for Indonesian communism, saying that it was an objective material fact that Indonesia was a religious country, so as materialists, they must recognize that. Um, the vast the vast majority of Indonesian uh, members of the Indonesian Communist Party were Muslims on Java, and then a huge number of members of the Indonesian Communist Party were Hindus uh, on the island of Bali. That would be the sort of number one and then number two groups by uh, uh, religion. And the question of how they were so successful is really interesting, and we know this because we have now declassified documents from the CIA and uh, we have the memoirs of the Indonesian ambassador 
where they recognize in this period when the, in the communists are winning more and more elections, they recognize, even though they're very unhappy about this, they, they say, oh, well, it makes sense why they're winning more and more. They are doing the best job at being a party. So they were the least corrupt, according to these American voices. They were... They would go out into the uh, they would go out to the people with various outreach programs, and there was and there was uh, and these were very very important. One of the most important was a peasants' um, uh, association, which would push for more land reform, but also just sort of help um, peasants do as best within do their best within the existing legal structure. There was a cultural organization that would put on sort of concerts and um, puppet shows. And they were kind of like a lot of times if you lived in the countryside, this was like everything fun that happened in your city would have been put on by Lecra was the name of this organization. Uh, almost everyone that was in a union in the country, the union was organized by the Communist Party. And then the teachers organization was very, very much um, sponsored by the Communist Party. And then on top of that, you have the Gerwani, which is the women's organization, which maybe at the time was the largest feminist organization in the world. So it was very much a lot of hard work and discipline when, according again to these declassified American voices, a lot of the other parties were sort of venal and not as hardworking. For the Indonesia of then, I know it would look very different than the Indonesia of now, were there capitalists within the country who could sort of, who were in dialogue with these military leaders while this was going on? Was the capitalism that developed in Indonesia, should I think of it more as just like a military autocracy where there were no huge monopoly capitalists who could influence civil society and the military just would seize huge um, corporate interests and, and develop it themselves? What was the alternative vision of um, Indonesia that these leaders who did these horrible things wanted and were they supported by business or did they themselves become the business as the violence unfolded? Sure. So I think it's a very good point that, you know, what motivates evil people? And I think, I think there's one point at the end of the book when I talk to the son of the man who ends up, who, the son of the man who is the sort of founding father of U.S. covert action in the early part of the Cold War. And I think a lot of people would recognize now that he did some, was responsible for some very horrible things. And he said that he believed his father believed he was doing the right thing. And I also believe that he believed that. But I also think that's true for literally every single, single person that's ever done anything. I think that no one, no one thinks they're doing evil, right? I mean, Hitler, I'm sure Hitler thought he was doing something good for the world. And, and a really, a really um, I think a good rule for understanding this that emerged out of my research here is that usually what happens is people convince themselves that if they don't do it, something even worse is going to happen. And that was definitely the, the way that propaganda was pushed during the mass killings, the propaganda that was pushed by Suharto after he shut down all competing media outlets and was able to tell the world exactly what he wanted to tell them. The story that he told them was that the actually it was the Indonesians that had planned mass murders and massacres, and if they weren't stopped, it, they were going to do that, which is entirely untrue. But you could see how that would be what you would have to believe in order to to um, stoop to such uh, levels. And to answer your question about the economic uh, aspect, there were already some tensions brewing underneath the surface uh, between not what you would call the capitalist class, what you would probably call a feudal class in the old Marxist terminology or even, um, I mean, I think it's the best term for it, uh, but that before even Suharto was able to tell the story. So there was a very modest land reform program that was passed in Indonesia and the Indonesian Communist Party was responsible for something that were called one-sided actions, which was basically they would go out and try to make sure that this was really enforced. And this was kind of, it was, they, they, they were technically supposed to be active within the law, but they pushed right up against being 
uh, agitators on large land landowners that were trying to avoid losing their land in the way that this new land reform law dictated. So we have reports, especially in East Java, that there was the tensions were already high between landowners that were trying to hold on to their holdings and the Communist Party that was agitating to get the the land reform program enforced. So that motivation for participating in the violence, which which was was important. You wouldn't have had I mean it's very hard to kill this many people. You couldn't have got it done without some kind of pre existing um antipathy and without mass propaganda, without you know, you need every single component to get this kind of a thing done. And that was one important part of it. But they did it to defend something that existed, not to make sure that a, a new type of military-led capitalism took place. Because that is what took place. And this was, the, was, this was something that had been in, in the minds of US policymakers through the late 50s and the early 60s, is that the, you know, the, what you need to do to advance to capitalism, you need this big push from sort of primitive society to a modern American-style society. And the military would oversee this. And they brought in economists that studied at Berkeley, which is where I went to undergraduate. They were called the Berkeley Mafia. And they were sort of, there was a de developmentalist capitalist project, uh, which did sort of, was sort of implemented, but it was different from the thing that motivated some of the landloaders in, uh, in the actual moment of the violence. So lastly, for the, the U.S., I guess, um, and, and I think you add nuance to this in a way, a lot of my tension, Vincent, the subtext to the earlier questions are, I'm, I'm just so tired of uh, platforms that do a poor job of actually interviewing people from these countries. So I would never reach out to you, let's say, without having first interviewed Indonesians um, or having that on the record of, oh, yeah, I've spoken to a lot of people from this country. And I, I just get very creeped out. Um, and again, this is not your fault. And I don't even know how much this is these people's thought, faults. I think like you were sort of saying, everyone thinks they're doing good. But it really bothers me that a lot of people in the U.S. left will only talk to other Americans about foreign countries when you can call. There's huge um, uh, amounts of leftists in Indonesia, experts in Indonesia who people can reach out to. And I think you have to do like your, your work is extremely important in that it's creating dialogue and showing the legacy of violence in the U.S. But it, you also have to talk to people in that country. And I think that a lot of U.S. leftists only talk to Vincent. And, and that is a lot of the tension of the earlier questions, just to clarify. Um, so for the U.S., um, with that sort of uh, addendum rant aside, for the leaders who saw this again, it's you. How did they psycho psychologically justify what Suharto ended up doing? And where, for you, in the course of your research, did you see the line between what they advocated for? So maybe they wanted small scale violence. Oh, you know, you just need to kill ten thousand people. <laughs> or a hundred thousand people versus Suharto's campaign of, of maybe a million plus. Um, where did they say, oh, just brutalize them a little compared to the horrible amounts of, of rape and sexual assault and trauma that still haunts Indonesia to this day? Could you talk and feel free to be as muddy and complex as you need to about some of this um, tension of, okay, where did the U.S. start and Indonesia Indonesia's military leaders end in regards to this campaign of mass murder. The reason I sort of zoom out so far in this book, and uh, part of the reason, as I said before, is Josh Oppenheimer's film does such a good job of giving a close-up of the violence itself. But another reason is that I think that it it's very hard to even to understand or believe how it would get to this point in 1965 if you didn't understand it as a 10-year process of increasing desperation on the part of anti-communists in Indonesia. So, as I said before, their first instinct back in the CIA in Virginia was not to kill anybody. They thought, oh, let's just, let's, let's give money to the right-wing party 
and then they'll win elections, problem solved. Again, that didn't work. Three years later, they are trying to provide hidden support to regional rebellions, which will break up the country, dropping bombs here and there. But they still, the idea was that it would be a tactical, psychological operation. That didn't work. Um, and then by the 60s, they, they're looking over at Vietnam and seeing how serious uh, uh, conflicts could get there. And for reasons that we still don't quite understand, this, this opportunity appears. And um, we have the exact words of the, um, the US ambassador at the time. He wrote back to Washington, the army now has the opportunity to move against Communist Party if it moves quickly, quote, it's now or never. So it, I think that those of us that sort of grew up in the United States, I mean, it sounds like you have a North American accent too, it's, it's, hard to, it's hard to understand how it would get to this point, but I think it is this combination of repeated failure, a feeling of desperation, and then this, this strange opportunity, this, 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 this moment where, okay, now we could do it, right? And then how do they justify it to themselves morally? I think there's two, two answers to that. One is that there has been decades of dehumanization of quote-unquote communists in the West ever since the beginning of McCarthyism. It's just, you know, well, if they're communists, of course, they don't, they don't matter as people. And, you know, we have a, another quote that I cite in the, in the book to that effect. And number two, they sort of even they even told themselves they weren't really doing it. You know, like, even though they were clearly encouraging the military to do what it take, took to get rid of the base for Sukarno so that Suharto could take over, and they knew very well that the way that that was happening was mass murder, I'm sure that they told themselves that, that's, that they weren't responsible. I mean, this is, that's now speculation. Um... But I mean, when, when you're at that level, it's, it's very hard for, for human beings to admit the reality of what's happening. I mean, and then there, we, have, we, have, um, we also have accounts to contradict that. So there is a, there's a, a, a member of the embassy's political staff that said he gave lists of communists over to the, uh, the army so they could be killed. And he said, quote, I have a lot of blood on my hands, but maybe that's not all bad. So he, so some people took responsibility morally for what it was. Other people, I think, told themselves that actually, no, we might have put this in motion, but really it's just them doing it, it's not us, even though they knew they were encouraging it. And again, if I'm, if I'm trying to be sort of play devil's advocate or to understand where evil comes from, I think this is a generation that kind of, that was formed in World War II, and they, they believed that fighting Nazis was worth it and killing Nazis was a good thing, and they sort of mapped this experience of the world onto Indonesia, the Indonesian Communist Party, which was a very, very different thing, and, you know, and they ended up killing peasants and women that work in um, factories and just lots and lots and lots of civilians. But I would also question sort of why we need to play devil's advocate or why we need to try to be sympathetic because, you know, would we do that if, if we had a, a case of the Soviet Union assisting in the execution of one million people? Uh, you know, I think sometimes it's just, it's better just to say, oh, no, that was evil and, and not, not try to put ourselves in their shoes. Sometimes it's just, well... Maybe we should hold ourselves to the same standards that we would hold other parties to if they did this. And I think if it was Stalin or Ho Chi Minh or the current Chinese Communist Party assisting in the execution of one million civilians and putting another million in concentration camps, we probably wouldn't be trying to get into their head to understand what they were telling themselves. We'd probably just say, that's wrong. Reading about this violence, I always wonder... Was there a point where things could have been shut down? I'm always curious about violence as sort of like a perpetual motion machine um, where you'll read accounts of, of um, uh, when the state triggers violence or when it allows sort of um, 
para-state groups, so militias to start enacting violence, when does the off switch no longer become possible? And so I'm wondering for this campaign within Indonesia, were there attempts to, to switch off the campaign? Why did the campaign eventually stop? And um, to, what is the trauma that even though the violence has stopped, people aren't killing communists now, how do those the ghosts of, of those who were lost or those who were marked by this violence or, or sexual violence, how does that still shape Indonesia even though Soharto is no longer here? A big gap in the understanding of the Cold War in the West, in the English-speaking world in particular, is that we tend to think that, oh, yeah, well, we made alliances with bad guys and the bad guys did bad things and, and you know, they got out of control and they shouldn't have done that. But the violence was not incidental to what they were trying to do. It was necessary to what they were trying to do and it was constitutive of the regimes they created. And why do I say that? It's very hard to kill lots of people. It's not something you do. I mean, there are historical exemptions to this, but as a rule, you don't want to be going through the work of rounding up and murdering hundreds of thousands of people. Um, it, it usually is done for a reason. And in the case of Suharto, the reason it kept going on is because the Indonesian Communist Party had 25 to 30% of the, the population either in the party or affiliated with it. The violence went on until they were able to take over the country with full control without any fear of resistance. They needed to sufficiently destroy the base for President Sukarno, who was still the president, even though they had sidelined him while carrying out the violence. And so, and the United States, I want to make clear, was making it uh, extreme, they were very explicit in their communications with the Indonesian military that they needed to get this done, as to fully take over, sideline Sukarno, in order to be recognized as the, tr the real government and get foreign aid again. So to the extent that a lot of people might have wanted to stop, um, and we have evidence that it was very, you know, we have evidence that it was not easy for the actual killers, right? They often had to be they had to get them drunk or they had to threaten them. Uh, nobody wanted to be the one doing the actual killing. Uh, and then, you know, this is human nature. Humans don't like to do that. So whatever pushback there was, the thing that kept it going was that this was a, a means to actually cementing the control of the U.S.-backed military over Indonesia. And by the time you get to 1965... Conflict looks really likely. In order to really evade this whole uh, confrontation between various sections of Indonesian society, you probably have to go back to the 50s and avoid that CIA bombing, avoid the civil war, maintain the multi-party democracy, work closely with Sukarno to make sure the economy was, was, um, was going well because... And this is, I touched on this very briefly in the book, but, it, you know, one of those other components that is necessary to get the violence to happen is that the economy was bad in 1964 and 65 because Sukarno was very, um, was concentrating almost entirely on territorial disputes with the imperialist powers because he, he was worried that Indonesian independence could go away. So if you went back to the 50s and did a bunch of things differently, you could probably avoid all of the violence. Once you get to 1965, once the, the lines are drawn in the way that they are, I understand why it kept going. Um, the, the, the perpetrators needed to keep going to come out victorious. And for the legacies, um, you know, it's really fascinating. Uh, I, I'm not sure I haven't gotten all the way through the book, but in the New York Review of Books, um, uh, adapted excerpt, you sort of talk about how uh, Bolsonaro, um, not only was this model ported over to um, South American countries, but this being a mostly Asia-focused uh, program, um, people can read your wonderful essay, <laughs> but it was ported over to um, South American countries, but you, you have like a Bolsonaro now who 
when you read about it, I think like we were talking about, it's hard to conceptualize and, and we can be very only understand. It's very hard to understand these things, uh, how they could happen. And that's what makes, I think, violence so terrifying. But Brazilians have been saying for a very long time, like this, I don't think people understand how terrifying this man is in terms of his rehabilitation of fascists, rehabilitation of sort of the violence of military dictatorship in Brazil. Similarly, and this is very weird, and this gets more into your liberalism is sort of emerges from the blood of these foreign policy um, decisions. You have a Jacoli who's had to embrace the military um, and who, who won his election, um, is still quite popular, I believe, but was facing off against a military candidate who it seems like really wanting to rehabilitate the Indonesian military. For, for these countries, how do these, why do these ghosts keep coming back? And having studied um, um, these legacies of fascism being rehabilitated, are you seeing any of those same warning signs in the United States? Because a lot of the people who write about Trump, unfortunately, like, I, I, I don't really understand their worldview in, in the terms of it's the slow violence of neoliberalism or the fast violence of fascism. And I don't like either of those choices. Um, so how did you sort of see for the Indonesia of now or the Brazil of now, this violence is still not fully understood. It's still dangerous. And do you see any of that fascism being rehabilitated or ported over actually inside the U.S.? So I'm in, I'm in Sao Paulo now. Uh, on Sunday, there was another rally in which pro Bolsonaro, uh, quote unquote, protesters were calling for the reinstitution of the most violent days of Brazil Brazil's dictatorship. This is not something that it was it was lurking below the surface when I started on the book, but now it's just it's right there. It's 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 come out of the water. It's visible. It's no longer the ghost. It's the full resurrection uh, of this of this violent legacy, and. I, why? Why? Um, I think that the order which the military dictatorship here instituted, just like the military order that in Indonesia um, had thrust upon itself in 1965, just as I was explaining, it required violence to sustain it, right? Um, it, it is inherently unstable. It was, it, you cannot institute a right-wing regime in, 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 in Indonesia, which was 30% communist, without getting rid of the possibility of dissent. And you cannot impose a brutally unequal society on Brazil, as has been the case for hundreds and hundreds of years, without periodic top-down violence. So... Um, Listeners who are from North America or live in Asia now are may not be really uh, familiar with just how brutally unequal Brazil always has been, but there have, as a result of that um, inequality, the the ruling class here has very, <laughs> very regularly employed violence against potential uprisings from below. Whether that be slave revolts, whether that be left wing revolutions, whether that be uh, elections, which would have taken away. A small amount of their privilege, and I think that's the the short answer: is that the the order which the violence arises to protect is unstable, is unstable. Sorry, uh, the instability is built into it, and that necess necessitates the violence. As I said in 1965, it's really hard. I mean, I don't want to get graphic, but it requires the the exertion of force to plunge a knife into someone's body and to kill them, and to do this hundreds of thousands of times. Is a, is a lot of work, and you don't, and you do it because it is necessary for the maintenance of a certain order. And that was the case in Indonesia. That was the case in Brazil. And the transition to democracy that happened in Brazil was of the type that the elites always kept. Um, there was always a sort of an exit plan. There was always a way to sort of bring violence back to bear upon the people if if it got out of hand. If if they're if their um, 
if their privileges were threatened. And that, and that was a very disappointing thing for me to see as a journalist because it looked like the democracy was here, here to stay in Brazil, and I hope it still does stay. But it really looked like it was had been established um, for the 20, 25 years that there was pre-Bolsonaro democracy in South America. And I think likewise in Brazil, when Jokowi was elected, a lot of human rights activists thought that he would be the one to apologize for 1965, perhaps even oversee some kind of a reconciliation, truth and reconciliation commission. Um, even you know, some, some of the survivors I met thought that they might even get some kind of reparations payment. And I think the reason he didn't is because the military is still, I mean, this is speculation, I don't know, but a very common speculation is that the reason this didn't happen is because the military retains the influence that it established in 1965. Now, in the case of the United States, um, what I, I haven't lived there for a while, and I, and I don't know enough to really analyze the internal workings of U.S. politics at the moment. What I will say is that many of the people that I met that were victims of sudden eruptions of right-wing violence in the 20th century, one thing that was very common when I spoke to them and they recounted what was happening right before is that they all said that they didn't think that it was possible at all that it could happen to them. They all thought at the time, whether that be the 50s in Guatemala or the 60s in Indonesia or the 70s in Chile, they all thought at that time that, quote, those kinds of things don't happen anymore. So I think while some criticisms of Trump are overstated, some are understated, so, you know, in every direction, I think people get, get him wrong and get him right. I would, never ca I would caution anyone, whether in 2020 or 2080 or 3080, against thinking that nothing bad can ever happen that 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 stuff's in the past it's not you know there's the possibility for backsliding or for the eruption of violence i think is in is, is always there you talk very beautifully about some of the survivors of violence and i don't want to um i think it's best sort of just people sit with it on their own and and read um some of these accounts that you've you've documented in some of the essays i've highlighted here but for the younger generation like to me, it is incredibly inspiring for Indonesia for reformasi de corruption or um, anarchists right now in the country are, um, <laughs> this is a weird one-to-one -to, -one to the U.S., anarchists are like the, the boogeyman right now for the Indonesian state. When they look at these protests, they blame the anarchists. Very weird parallel to the U.S., um, and I'm not citing conspiracy there. I, I think these are organic, but it's I think it's just a weird phenomenon of two states desperately searching for legitimacy and, and trying to blame an enemy, thumbing through the th the phone book, you know, of groups they haven't blamed yet. Um, and I, I'm wondering for you in your reporting in Indonesia or um, perhaps of Brazil or perhaps both. How were you inspired by maybe younger activists, or if inspired is the wrong word to ask a reporter, um, fascinated with how leftism or the practices of leftism have evolved in these countries that have endured extremely brutal violence and where violence is, is as you sort of have said for Brazil, constantly just beneath the surface, ready to flare up at any moment. Just as a journalist, I'll say that in Indonesia and Brazil, I am inspired by lots of young people that are really passionate, not only about learning everything they can about the history of their countries, but trying to figure out a way that they can in their, in their daily lives improve um, things. And, and, that, and that, you know, regardless of your ideology, left or right, or, you know, I'm, I'm like I said, I'm, I, I don't, I've always been a mainstream journalist, so I don't sort of take positions like that. But it's, it's, it's very inspiring that people 10, 15 years younger than me have not given up on reading everything and trying to figure out in their daily life the best way to interact with society and politics and, you know, their friends in, in, in order to sort of create a better world, you know, however they see that. And I think Loads of people are going to mistake, make mistakes and loads of people are going to be crushed by the powers of oppression. But I do find it inspiring that people 
have not <laughs> given up on this idea of trying to improve the world and, and as you say, doing the homework required to make sure that you act responsibly and um, in an informed manner. I, I see that I see that in in every country I'm, I've been in recently, and in Brazil and Indonesia are two good examples. And I guess the last question, this might be a short one, but West Papua for me has always been this very interesting um, phenomenon of, uh, and I guess um, it, it's so strange to me how like a lot of times the violence never leaves. And so I don't know if you came into it in your reporting, but did you come across West Papua? And if so, for the issues there today, that um, activists, organizers, citizens are having to endure uh, very heavy state violence, repression of freedom of the press. Did you see any connections to this earlier period in Indonesian history? And if so, um, what insights did this sort of strange temporality produce for you of the violence of the past being reproduced in the present? So there, there's a straight line, and uh, I don't go deep into it in the book um, because... I never got to go to West Papua because they don't let journalists go. This is one of these very horrible um, compromises you have to make as a foreign journalist in Indonesia. It's like, do you go and just maybe get caught and then you get banned from the country forever? Or do you just sort of try to report the best you can? And I never went. However, there's a direct line. I mean, the first big fight that Sukarno picked with the Western powers was to wrestle control of West Papua from the Dutch, and he eventually was successful. Um, if you got to this part in the book, the re Barack Obama's stepfather, the reason that Barack Obama moved to Jakarta as a child was that Lolo was pulled back from his studies in Hawaii because of the mass murder, because everyone that was living abroad was sort of required to prove their allegiance to the regime. So a lot of people were pulled back home. He was pulled back home and, and Barack went with him. And his job was to go and survey West Papua for the Indonesian military. So in a very, I mean, if you want to be as cynical and uh, um, pessimistic about it as possible, he was sort of forced by the Suharto dictatorship to prepare the ground for an invasion. And to this day, this is a huge issue. I, the world really needs to pay more attention to West Papua. I think every journalist in Indonesia kind of struggles to try to get e editors to care because nobody really has a sense of how big it is and how important it is. Um, I hung out with a lot of Papuans in Jakarta because I lived in a giant apartment complex called Kalibata City where the, a lot of, um, well, first of all, a lot of refugees, there was people from all over the world were there, but also there was a lot of Papuans that I used to play basketball with. And um, the answer to your question is there's a direct line. I wish I had been there and I, and I hope the world pays more attention to what's happening there. Well, Vincent, the last question I have, and this is the last one, but you keep, it's hard when you talk to smart people because you keep going, oh, wait, oh, wait, oh, wait. Last one, I cut myself off. The bartender has taken my keys. Um, when, so in the New York Times op-ed, I'm very interested now when I, I parse words very closely. And you're very deliberate in, and you use the term crony capitalism as opposed to, let's say, a more Marxist or anarchist or whateverist. Uh, analyses of sort of, no, just capitalism. And I'm wondering for the research you've done where you, you, you live in Brazil under, um, I, I don't even know how to describe, it, it, it just seems like a, a, a fever dream of um, the most ruthless industrialist. Um, you, you've reported extensively on the violence needed to produce geopolitical outcomes that were favorable for both uh, Western political economy, but also economics. Um, capitalists having a vested interest in, in what happened in these global uh, conflicts between communists and, and uh, opposition parties. 
where do you see the world heading based on your reporting or what flickers or insights or tangents do you see perhaps threading together for where we're going forward in the future? And to return just to that one uh, modifier to capitalism, why in that piece did you choose crony capitalism over capitalism? Yeah, it's a good question. So in the liberal intellectual tradition, and, and as I said, I've always, been, I've always written for mainstream English language publications. So the, the language is liberal, the, the assumptions are liberal, but I also sort of, I understand the left tradition. I think that's part of the reason I was able to interview so many Indonesians that were from this tradition. They understood that I understood where they came from. But the New York Times is a liberal paper, and in the liberal tradition, um, there is the idea of what capitalism is supposed to be. And I think it's very important to point out that the kind of capitalism that the vast majority the vast majority of the former third world got as a result of Cold War interventions was so far from the version of capitalism that you hear about in Econ 1 or that you read in the works of Adam Smith or that you have sort of professed by the intellectuals of liberal society that it needs a, a separate distinction. Now, someone from the Marxist tradition might say that all capitalism implies crony capitalism because the state will be captured by the most powerful economic forces, etc. And while I, um, I think there's, that's true to an extent. I mean, even, even the best social democratic or the best capitalist societies that have ever existed, there's been some element where the most powerful elements of society control things. I think there is a, a distinction to be made between Brazil in the 70s and the United States in the 70s. And this is a, a huge oversimplification, but sometimes oversimplification is necessary when you're talking about global issues. Something I point to in the, in the, in the conclusion is that kind of we're seeing a convergence everywhere <laughs> uh, to the kind of crony capitalism that you got in Brazil in 1964, that you got in Indonesia in 1965, that all of the post-communist world got after the Soviet Union fell apart. I think you're seeing a slide towards that almost everywhere. And there's sort of indicators of that even in North America, right? Like Branko Milanovic, a brilliant Serbian economist in his book, Global Inequality, he points to the, no, the, the percentage of a, of, of a society which is employed as private security as evidence of a growing plutocracy or the kind of extreme inequality, which means that the state ends up being uh, coming second to to private economic interests, and Western Europe is not there, but a lot of the world is. Um, and I'm worried that that the world that was created by the 20th century, the world that was created by the the Cold War, uh, tends towards crony capitalism. And I and and I think there is there is a distinction there between. Putin's capitalism, Bolsonaro's capitalism, and say, you know, the France of, of, of 2005, even though, of course, economic interests in France in 2005 had more control over the political sphere than, you know, uh, 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 a single laborer without any money whatsoever. Well, Vincent, this was a really interesting chat. Thank you for letting me... Um, um, speak honestly with you about uh, a lot of these issues and I really appreciate the diligence of your reporting. Where can people find you and if it's not giving you trauma from thinking about the amount of work that went into reporting this, um, what are you thinking about your next project or are you just sort of sitting and sort of, it sounds like still analyzing this amazing uh, piece of reporting you've done? Well, it is absolutely true that I'm still thinking through the the implications of this book. I mean, sometimes people hear about a book, and because a lot of books come out and they're like a pundit book where it's just like a bunch of stuff assembled in the service of an argument, and this book is not that. It, it is just the story of what happened to these people, and I don't know what the lessons are fully. I'm still trying to think through what those are, and maybe I'll be thinking them through for a very long time, and I hope people pick out pick up the book and sort of help me think 
through them with me. But I also would like to write another another book. I am I am trying to do that, and I'm and hopefully, uh, if if some people read this first one, I'll be able to. I, I really enjoyed being able to give a project real attention in real time. That is not always possible when you're on newspaper deadlines, and so I hope hope I'll be able to do this again. So I'm on Twitter. Uh, Twitter. Um, I'm on Twitter. I'm Vincent, but with two N's, so V I N N C E N T. Um, and then people can buy the book wherever you would buy a book normally. But if you want sort of a breakdown of what all those options are, you go to thejakartamethod.com, which is just my WordPress. But I have some links to different places around the world where you can either support independent bookstores or pick it up if you're in a hard-to-reach part of the world. Mm-hmm.